Hello and welcome to the Width of the Post podcast. My name is Jason McEwen and I'm joined by Tim Penfold and Alex Scott to talk all things Bradford City. There's so much to get through on this episode. We'll discuss the end of Mark Hughes' time as Bradford City manager, the caretaker impact of Kevin McDonald, who might be next in the Valley Parade hot seat and what recent events say about the overall direction of the club. We'll also talk about times when we've all been wrong on our football opinions, an amnesty and a celebration of being disproven. And we'll go through some of your best of your messages along the way. So welcome, Alex and Tim. Now, between the three of us over the years, we've often joked that some of the Whitford Post's more scathing match reports have helped to get under-pressure managers to sack. Alex, for example, wrote a really cutting piece about Michael Collins, his last game in charge at Fleetwood, that's still well worth digging out and reading again. I went a little bit hard on Gary Boyer with his final match at Oldham, and Tim, you definitely twisted the proverbial knife into Derek Adams towards the end. But when it comes to Hughes, Alex, I think it's fair to say, actually, it's your uncle who can take the credit for his demise after some mm-hmm. truly brutal remarks on the grand stage of the Ryder Cup he uh, we got collared so we were at the Ryder Cup on the Sunday all wearing city shirts because it sort of stands out and you know if you get enough of us together you might get, get on TV or something you always got a bright shirt and got collared by this guy who wandered over said he was from Bradford and he worked for BBC Sport and he was work, running the live blog he comes and talks to my Uncle Nige and uh, he's just been banging on about how he was sick of Hughes and he wanted him to go and he'd sort of lost all his patience. And it gets published on the BBC Live blog that Nigel's lost his patience with Hughes and it's sort of time for him to go. And lo and behold, a couple of days later, he'd had it. So there you go. Sort of, <laughs> not only have I done... Co- historically vindicated in that in that write-up about that Collins performance, I will, I will attest. Um, but it sounds like it runs in the family as well. The width of the post, extended family, twisting the knife left and right. We're a, power, a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> Absolutely. And we will dig out the and include the link to the BBC blog where the Scott family do make a really good photo appearance there. Um, we'll, we'll, so you, you guys can get hold of that if you want to have a look at it for yourself. And you will see you know, those cutting words that came from Uncle Nige that basically left Hughes in no doubt that the end was nigh. We had nowhere to go. He had nowhere to go after he, that. He was, he was done then yeah. after that, definitely. Uh, Tim, on the last podcast, um, it was an absolute dream for you because you got to spend it waxing lyrical about Bobby Poynton for basically 95% of it. I feel like with everything we need to talk about today, we're, we're letting Alex down a little bit here because over the last few weeks, and especially at the weekend's game against Swindon, some truly remarkable examples of blind alley winger play, wide players showing some excellent dribbling skills and then being absolutely woeful with the end product do we need to apologize to alex tim quite possibly yes because we won't be able to fit that in and to be honest we're not going to be able to fit in all i want to say about Poynton again because <laughs> what are we doing this width of a Poynton podcast um <laughs> you can make your own spin-off tim you've got a shot clock of 90 <laughs> seconds of point and content and i've got a timer and as soon as you hit 90 you can't mention him again for the rest of the episode so use it wisely i also get 45 seconds to talk about that mazy run from Osadebi that he ran into the box and then screwed it wide from six yards out. So we've got an even shot, Chloe. We've got a fair approach, I think. Yeah, that sounds right, doesn't it? Stopwatches at the ready. Okay, uh, so many talking points right now at Bradford City, but we absolutely need to start with Mark Hughes. And after a tough few days that saw back-to-back defeats to Walsall and Tranmere, time was called on Hughes' tenure at the club. It has been a disappointing start to the season under Hughes with just three wins from 11 league games that saw City slump down to 18th in the league. Tim, if I start with you, was this the right decision? I think just about yes. Um, it felt inevitable. We were both at Tranmere on Tuesday, Jason, and it was miserable by the end. Everyone had turned. 
and it had been fairly well briefed at that point, I think, because hadn't it been in both the Sun and the TNA that Hughes was going if he lost or something like that? Um, so it felt inevitable at that point he was gone. But it's such a drop-off, because you couldn't have imagined this as we got into the playoffs last season, and the drop-off has been spectacular, hasn't it? You know, I might have given him another couple of weeks, but he was heading down the direction where I think he'd have got the sack from even the most patient City fans. Um, so, yeah. But, yeah, it's just surprising how quickly everything's fallen apart this season. It was a bit of a when, it was a when not if, wasn't it, by the end, I think. Yeah. Because I, 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 you, you were both there, but the thing, because I watched that game and thought they were, again, I didn't, I didn't watch the game the Saturday before, obviously, because I was out of the country, but the, um, the from what I understand from you guys, they started quite well. On, on, in the yep. Warsaw game, it all sort of fizzled away, and and, and they sort of lost. And then even again on against on the Tuesday night against Trump, I thought it started all right. I thought it was pretty good to begin with, and then it sort of faded again, and it went out. And I, I still thought there's something there to give him a bit of time or whatever. And then he walked he walked on the pitch, and you could sort of see it on the iFollow camera, and you could hear the boo as he went to the city crowd, and it was like cacophonous on the on the mics. As it, and then as soon as I heard that, I was like. Ooh. That that's probably done it. Was it as loud as it felt like it was from the outside? Loud. Yeah. It felt like pretty much everyone. Well, I'm not a particularly heavy booer, um, even at the end of games. But it felt like pretty much everyone around was joining in, and also the chance of you getting sacked in the morning were very loud. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the crowd had very much turned. And was it your match report, Jason? you were saying, was it at that game or an equivalent game a few years ago when Adams just walked off, right? And this is the, yeah, the that, downside of that, the other side of the coin, I suppose. Yeah, that was right. We, it was a couple of years ago and we lost 2-1 to Chambia, really awful. And the players got absolute pelters at the full-time whistle and they all went over and it wasn't great. But Derek Adams just went straight down the tunnel and just left them to it. And I always thought that was incredibly poor leadership you know you've kind of got to take your medicine sometime haven't you as well and Hughes to his credit would have known going over what what kind of response he was going to get there but he still went over anyway and I think that does say a lot about him but I think it is fair to say um, it, it wasn't the first time was it obviously you know he, he had a really bad reaction at the end of the Harrogate game uh, the Walsall game as well and it did feel Tim really that he'd lost his public hadn't he really yeah very much so um Valley Parade had lost faith that the sideways passing was ever going to go anywhere. And so it was very difficult for us to be patient in the build-up because there was no faith that we were going to do anything other than pass it between the centre-backs and maybe to a full-back if we were lucky. Um, and so you get grumbles and frustration there and then more so when the results don't aren't there either. And Alex, where has it gone so wrong for him, would you say? It's, I mean, in a way, his career, it's been a, there's been a lot of successes to his tenure, right? It's not, it's not all been wrong. They did all right last year, but as Tim said, it's sort of fallen apart spectacularly. I think some of that was sort of really obvious in advance. You know, we talked, I mean, we talked about it. I mean, it's obvious enough for us three to get it. It's got to be pretty obvious, right? That, you know, Cook, it was never going to be as good as he was again last year. The goalkeeper was never going to be as good as he was last year, just through, you know, numbers, you know, regression. Um, and they had to try and find a way to counterbalance that. And I think ultimately the, the 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 options that he chose to counterbalance that just haven't worked. And some of that's been a bit unlucky. You know, Cook having a, a not just regressing to the mean, regressing far beyond it at the start of the season, missing lots of chances, missing penalties. Patterson coming in, starting one, getting injured, and you know just losing key players here and there, and never really being able to settle something. Always being on the back foot from the start. But even with all of that. 
his his plan didn't work and that and ultimately he was so tied into it by the end he just couldn't get out yeah um and there's been a lot of talk about the, the style of football under Hughes um felt increasingly Tim the real disconnect between what he wanted to do and what the players were capable of is is that fair to say I mean yes and no you can play passing football in this division I mean, I think it was Gary Jones quoted on the radio saying, you can't pass your way out of this division. Look at Notts County, top. Look at where a lot of the good possession teams in this division are. The ones who are struggling are us and Salford, who have been without Elliot Watt for much of the season. And when you're a possession team, you really need the person deep in midfield to actually set that and set the tempo, because otherwise you go endlessly sideways like we did. Um, So you can do that. There's, you know... Even at the weekend, I know they lost, but Swindon looked like a decent, well-coached possession team that just was lacking a bit in depth, really. Um, but we never looked like a well-coached possession team. It was always reliant on the individuals to do something. There was never any sort of pattern to it. It was always, OK, we're going to keep the ball, and then we're going to rely on you to make the runs off the ball and spot the pass and so on, rather than getting that coached into them which is what happens a lot of the sort of possession teams at this level we really quite pre-rehearsed they'll have a lot of different moves where they know okay he's got it there so i'll run here and then i'll make the move there and there'll be someone running there and so it looks you know and you can break down defenses that way whereas we were relying on the decision making of our players and hughes himself said it the technique level isn't that much you know that's not much different to the top top flight it's the decision making and why he was expecting top-level decision-making from Tier 4 players, I'm not 100% sure. But as a result, decision-making was, we're going to pass it sideways, and we're going to take the safe option, and we're not going to make that run. Um, And sometimes it worked, you know, sometimes we had the individual players. When we were playing Walker, Chapman and Banks behind the striker, for example, a couple of times last season, that looked pretty good. When we had Elliot Watt deep in midfield, that looked pretty good. But most of the time, we amassed possession by never doing anything risky with it, by just passing yeah. it sideways and then inevitably not getting any results because we could not break down a defence. I remember when he when he started, he had this interview relatively early, and it was in the early days when he first brought Gilead into midfield and something, and he said, my job as a coach, I'm paraphrasing because I, I haven't got the quote in front of me, but you know, you want to try and make decisions as easy as possible for people. Just like make it obvious for the thing that they have to do so they have to think less and they can just play. And by the end, as Tim was saying, everyone was just taking the obvious choice and the easy choice, the low-risk choice, and then you just get get stuck in a doom loop and nothing ever happens and eventually you're not good enough to keep it forever and you're just going to give it away and it's just going to turn and every time they even... And this is where Smallwood, I think, sort of... Not hard done by, because I sort of get where fans are coming right and he's not exactly played well, especially this year, but he became the sort of personification of it. Because he was the one who was always at the crux of it, right? He could either have a difficult pass going forward or an easy pass to Brad Halliday. And his instinct is, I'll just take these, I'll just do, you know, keep possession, keep it spinning around, keep recycling because that's the easy choice. That's the, that's the decision he's been asked to make. And him making it, he was the personification of the manager, of the style of play on the pitch. And he was the one who had to bear the brunt of it. Um, and it just, it made everything worse. You know, the atmosphere just spiraled. As Tim said, the, what was your quote, Tim? Like the... The fans lost faith that the passing was ever going to go anywhere, and it's sort of that. Yeah. It's that pass, isn't it? It's a small word to Halliday. Looks forward, doesn't know what to do, comes back, passes to Halliday. Like that's the pass that was his downfall, really. Yeah, and 
And on that as well, Alex, I mean, you've done some really interesting research um, that you've been sharing with us before the, the podcast in terms of the, the difference between when games where Bradford City have had a lot of possession under Mark Hughes and games where they haven't have they've had less possession and it's quite striking what you found there. I mean I should say before before I go into this, this is a big assist to uh Paul Bates, who's a friend of the podcast who, who put me onto this a few months ago was saying look at our stats when we have loads of possession because it feels like we lose all the time. So I had a look at Hughes's ad seventy two league games if you include the playoffs. They ignored cups just because he had different divisions and stuff. So the seventy two games he's had it sort of breaks even Stephen around the fifty five percent mark. So in, in you know half the games we've had more than fifty five percent possession. In the other half we've had less than fifty five percent possession. So in theory you got more of the ball. You should be on the front foot. You should be attacking. You should be a better team. When we've had more of the ball, so in the games where we've had fifty five percent of the possession, which is about half of Hughes's tenure, we got a point a game. It's relegation form. You know we've got uh, thirty three points from those thirty three games. If you start it from the start of this start of last season. So a lot of those points that we actually gained in there to get up to a point a game was, as Tim said, it's in the Elliot Watt sample at the back end of that first season. If you take the Elliot Watt games out, so you start it from the beginning of last season to now, under Mark Hughes, there were 25 games where we had more than 55% possession and we won four of them. Wow. So you 25 Crazy. games in which we've had more than 55%. So you have more of the ball, you're on top, you've had the possession, you have 25 games, they've won four, they got 23 points from those 25 games. That is bottom year 23rd if you extrapolate that over the season games in that same sample where they've had more than 55 percent you know where they've been uh, less than 55 percent sorry so they haven't had all of the ball they've sort of been sitting back a bit more being a bit direct not keeping it as much they got 67 points from 34 extrapolates out to a 91 point season it's first the best side in the division when they didn't have the ball more they were a much better team and you know the stats is small sample sizes but you know basically when they have loads of the ball, they're a relegation team. They're not very good. They don't know how to do it. If they don't have the ball, they're very good at that. They can do that, and they're good at it, and they were the best side in the division over, over the last sort of 12 months in, in games of that style. And it sort of splits 50-50. It's not like a huge a huge weighted sample. And that was the thing with Hughes. He was so he was so desperate for control. That was my, my one overarching thing. I was thinking about like what was his legacy going to be in my mind. So he just was desperate to control from the bench. Which I think is kind of a common thing for sort of former great players, you know, especially when you're at low levels. Yeah. Like, you want to control it. How can they be my drones on the field to do the thing that I want them to do? And in his pursuit of this control of having possession, let's keep the ball, let's do, do things the right way, it'll, it'll come. He became blinded to actually what was the best system to suit the players that he had. Because if you've got Sm- Richie Smallwood at the back of your midfield, you know, Richie Smallwood, as proven on Saturday, frankly, can be a fine player at this level if you ask him to do the things he can actually do. If you ask him to be Elliot Watt, he, it's not his game. You know, you can't do that. And I, and I think if you, if Mark Hughes had been more aware of the limitations of his players, or not even the limitations, the strengths of their players, frankly, of the, who my players are, how can I build a side that helps this team win? I think he'd have come to a different conclusion than what he came to because they've proven in a more direct style when they sit back last year and this so I think Jason you mentioned in your match report a, few, a couple of days ago like Salford away like backs against the wall did really well won the game Mansfield away backs against the wall <laughs> did really well won the game there is examples of it that he could have picked up on and said hang on we're actually pretty good when we are when we don't have the ball and we can sit back and hit Cook with the direct balls on the counter it was the evidence was there for him and he just didn't pick up on it um, and I think ultimately that's his that's the big lesson I, I took to look forward but from his perspective 
over the summer he had the, he could he saw what we were like when we had all the ball and not doing very well even in the playoffs you know we were passing it around to no, to, to no avail he could have then said in the summer right forget possession let's just be good play direct let's be good let's do that and he chose not to he said right how can we be better in possession let's go three at the back and let's find different ways that we can keep the ball easier out balls from midfield and he went the wrong way and I think ultimately that's cost him his job yeah, um, that's really interesting um, insight there, Alex. And we will um, put some of those stats on on the actual Woodford Post page that goes with this podcast, just so you can have a look at it yourself if you're listening to this and just want to visualise it a little bit more. But yeah, absolutely damning, um, isn't that really? Um... The point about Smallwood not being Elliot Watt, we were saying this a year ago. Yeah. We were saying we were better away from home a year ago because the high possession leading to bad results, I think it's almost a symptom of our weaknesses rather than the actual court well to a degree a bit of that it's when a team sat in i mean the obvious example was barrow yeah where they sat back they nicked a goal on the counter and then they sat back and we had 77 percent possession which was the second highest the only other one where we had a higher possession was doncaster on the opening day last season who were down to 10 men time wasting and going for the point from a get-go and so on and got their point when we ha- you know when teams came and tried to play us sometimes we would crumble northampton's one of them orient's one of them the playoffs is one of them when we tried to sit but with the playoffs we tried to we hid away from that challenge we tried to sit back but there were times where we went toe to toe and didn't have as much the ball and didn't have as much possession but Smallwood and Gilead in midfield they're both good off the ball players they'll both do a lot of running and get stuck in neither of them are Elliot Watt or that sort of passer for a possession team, as Alex has said. So we got good results there, especially away from home. And the same thing happened on Saturday, to be honest. Um, but when we were faced with a side that just said, well, we're coming to promotion contenders, Valley Parade, big crowd. If we sit in for half an hour, the crowd will get frustrated. Um Bradford won't have a clue how to break us down. They'll just pass it sideways between their centre-backs. And you might get a few chances from that because they're going to make the occasional mistake. So just occasionally you might nick it off them and run through. See Barrow again. It's such an easy game plan. It's how I would have set up with a smaller team at Valley Pride every single time in, you know, in the Hughes era because that was the obvious weakness. If you came out and tried to give them a game, they could give you a game. But if you sat back and said, right, break us down... We didn't have the faintest idea how to do that a lot of the time. Absolutely, yeah. And proven again with the Walsall game, which was a real nail in the coffin, wasn't it? Oh, and then also we couldn't defend a set piece as well. So all we had yep. to do was get a cup, get one corner, watch us fail to defend it properly, and get three more in a row, and then eventually one would go in. And throughout yeah. the throughout the Hughes era, we've been the worst side at defending set pieces. You know, as we wrote last year. The frustrating thing is, from from my perspective, like us three. Actually, do take it personally. We're all idiots, right? None of us are football people. We've been saying <laughs> yeah. this for. This is obvious. It's like not hard, you know. So they have obviously spotted this themselves. Doesn't you know? We're not enlightened, you know. They can they can see it as well. But in the summer, he didn't try and get a ball playing midfielder in so much so that the only even quasi ball playing midfielder we had in Ryan East, he loaned him out to the conference and didn't replace it. <laughs> you know, we've got in Kevin McDonald, sure, I suppose, but he he's not Elliot what either, based on what I've seen. We've invested in more defenders. You invest in a different structure to try and... But none of that solves the actual problem. It's bizarre that that's the decision that they took in knowing what they know. It's just bizarre. And I think ultimately that if you look back on his tenure, like what was the turning point? As Tim said, this this thing that we're talking about now has been true for the last 
ever since his entire tenure, right? The turning point might have been Elliot Watt to Richie Smallwood. Yeah, if he'd have had, if he'd, if they'd have managed to find a way to keep Elliot Watt and persuade him to stay, and you know, not bothered with Richie Smallwood, you know, would they have got promoted last year? You know, if they'd have had someone in midfield who can actually play and help you unlock a team who sit back, you know, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what was a funny couple of years at the club, didn't he? Where at times he, he did struggle, and then but then towards the end under Hughes, he was absolutely outstanding, wasn't he? And it was a real shame to lose in that summer. And he had a brilliant year at Salford last season, where he got a lot of um, good attention for that as well. So he has been a massive loss, as you say. Um, Keith Bruce, Keith Bruce had tweeted to say um, Hughes did well at bringing the supporters together after Adams, but I believe he didn't get over the Carlisle defeat, and I don't think his heart was in it to go again for another League Two season. And is that fair to say, Tim, that you know? There is that kind of the devastation that was felt by us supporters, felt by players, felt of the club as well. Probably affected Hughes quite a bit as well, as, as perhaps influenced him this season. Because people have said he's not quite looked the same person this season. I mean, it could be. It must be a weird thought to know that the season fell apart, and they could you can pinpoint a substitution that you yeah. one decision that you did. As I mean, to be fair, we were quite lucky to be in the game at that point but we got it back into the game and then Hughes's idea of we'll go defensive and hang on did not work and it was a decision that was both really cautious which showed him in a bad light when you know swung the momentum straight back Carlisle's way um, and you could point to him and just go yeah that's his decision that's his fault and i yep. do wonder you know how much of that was him struggling to get past that one um i mean the way he doubled down and went straight for the back five again well yeah. back three back five and say it was almost like yeah i want to prove that i can make this work and he never did it's really interesting yeah. it's a really interesting point isn't it it is yeah um and just a final thought on that alex looking overall how do you think the hughes era will be remembered or how does it deserve to be remembered so I think two different answers to those questions. I think if you look back, look at it objectively, you know, he got us to a playoff semi-final. One. You know, two, he's not Derek Adams. Both of those things have value. Um, <laughs> highest finish in six years. You know, in my entire team, you and I are about the same age, right? Chase, you're a little older than both of us, not too much. So in the last 35 years, my life, it's only the sixth time we've ever finished in the top six. Yeah, it's not. That's not nothing, right? You know, it's the only third time in the last twenty-five, twenty years that we've got more than seventy-five points. It's a good season, objectively a good season, but it never felt like they really clicked. It felt like they were always in like third gear that they never found a way to get to fourth and fifth. So, even though they were scoring points and succeeding and doing well, you know, even though Andy Cook had the second best attacking season any City players ever had, it still felt like they were left something on the table, and especially with how it ended. That I, and I think that's the thing. So I think overall, he actually, given where we've been, he should be reflected on quite positively. But how he's going to be remembered, as Tim said, is killing that playoff semi-final with that substitution. That's going to be his legacy, and he's you know, and understand, and sort of rightly, if you know what I mean. Like that was a catastrophic decision in foresight. Like at the time, we were texting each other, go time. Like, what was he doing? Like I don't say he's injured. Like no one could understand what was happening in the moment. Um, yeah, and it was proven to be wrong. And I think that'll be that'll be his legacy, unfortunately. Absolutely, and you do. We'll go to later on and talk about how we've been proven wrong at times at games, and something happens. But I remember very distinctly being at Brunswick Park with Tim next to us, how and Tim almost howling like, "What are you doing with that substitution?" No one around us could understand it, and then 
you know, five minutes later, Matty Platt lets him go free and heads the winner, doesn't he? And yeah, just just shocking, really, wasn't it? Really, a really a moment he's just going to live in infamy, I think, really. Yeah. So we asked the question on Twitter, um, what people make of the of the Mark Hughes era overall and reflection. Um, and the guy who's actually called the Hughes era on Twitter says, um, I don't think it was he was horrendous in all honesty, but how long are we going to stay in this league? If it's a long time, then at least entertain us. Um, Al Torrigo says, not good enough conservative football, failing last year against poorer teams, cost promotion, changes to back five with no decent wing-backs, overseeing or allowing poor recruitment, ignoring some players who were recruited. Silver says last season was an improvement, however very lucky regarding the Cook and Lewis form. If not for them, we were mid-table performers. Carlisle game, he lost me altogether. This season has been awful and he has clearly lost the players. He had to go. Not our worst manager, but ultimately failed. Chris says last season was very good. Playoffs were a great result. However, I feel without an informed Cook and Lewis, it would have been a very average. He hasn't had the same luxury so far this season. That plus too much tinkering with an already solid defensive formation was his downfall. Sam Sega says, created his own downfall, 50% awful recruitment and 50% poor management, 36 signings in three windows plus seven and eight renewals. This summer's window hasn't improved us at all bar Patterson. Stabilised us but couldn't progress, didn't improve anyone as a player, gave impression that he wasn't interested. Jim Nicholson says, uh, quite clearly he took us forward but last season was a golden chance to get promoted and it was fluffed big time. I am still surprised at the player's lack of comfort in the system after 18 months together, although he did finally get a promise in performance with the hammering against Newport County. Uh, and finally, Brian says, I really wanted it to work, but his failure to get to grips with what you need to get out of League 2 cost him. I started to have serious doubts after that substitution at Carlisle and don't think he has ever had the same backing from the fans since. Okay, um, moving on then. And before we start talking about the next Bradford City manager, we do need to talk about Kevin McDonald and the impact that he made as caretaker manager on Saturday. Tim, what did you make of the Swindon game and the way that Kevin McDonald set the team up? I mean, there were a few people saying this was this big, dramatic change. While we've not seen it as much in home games, Mansfield away, Gillingham away, Salford away last season were the sort of games where a team a decent team came and attacked us and so we didn't have as much of the ball but it played to our strengths because we had good strengths off the ball in central midfield we pressed well and better and more energetically than we managed to do and Swindon in attacking they had they had a threat you know if Charlie Austin scores that sitter that he scuffed wide after what four minutes and that's one where we've given it away playing out from the back as well I'm not sure we get that win. I think Valley Parade turns pretty quickly at that point because we're just making the same errors. But instead, he misses and we go on to actually get a foothold in the game. And yeah, there's. I think there was a bit more confidence. There was a bit more... I'm not sure I want to say a bit more effort because it feels like I don't think we can accuse the players of not having tried in the last few games. They just ran out of ideas. But they looked just generally better. And the question is, how much of that is we've done a big ta- a bit of a tactical shift and how much of that is Swindon came and sort of played into our hands. Although, again, last season Northampton came and thumped us at Valley Parade. So, you know, teams have come and tried to play us and we haven't actually done that well against them at times. So we definitely did well in that regard. You know, plenty of good work off the ball, some good creativity on the ball, Bobby Point and getting his goal, which... I am, of course, absolutely thrilled about, and some pretty, just generally good performances throughout the team. It was very difficult to pick anyone who did badly, you know? 
um, the worst performances you go were okay. Whereas I think in the Walsall games, the best game, the best performances were okay, and that is a big difference. But yeah, tactically, I'm not sure how much of it is McDonald and how much of it is Swindon gave us a bit of room to play, and we could go a bit more direct and occasionally bully them a bit as well. Sort of like a double, it's a double edge in it because you kind of think if that team, would have, if they we'd have played them last week and they'd have come out to play, we might have actually under Hughes might have had the same outcome or whatever. But in the same way that Katie texted us as it was happening. If Mark Hughes' manager, Charlie Austin, scores that goal, right, like 100 times out of 100, yep. there's no way that doesn't go in if Hughes is there. And if that goes in when Hughes is there, there's like a riot, right? It's like the the, the boos start down instantly and there's no way out. So the, it, it given, I think a lot some of it is luck, and I think, Jace, you made it, you, you sort of wrote it really well in your in, in your write of that actually they rode their luck quite a bit. You know, Swindon, uh, they, they, they could have had loads. They could have had like three or four, like conceivably. Can they, Harry Lewis had an unbelievable save second half. Um, even though we had chances so as well, but, you know, we. They, yeah, so did we. But they definitely, it yeah. definitely could have gone the other way, couldn't it? It was definitely not like a, a perfect, a perfect performance. But with the way it was going under Hughes, they definitely wouldn't have got the luck with him, and the fans would have turned yeah. on it. And it sort of, it needed him. The only way we would have won that game is if we sacked him. Yeah, um, but as what we're saying as well, Alex. So because we talked about Kevin McDonald coming in as caretaker, and it, it just seemed a bit of a left field choice, a bit a quite random really when the news came through. But he does have that kind of understanding of the mood of the dressing room and where they were struggling with the Hughes. And there was a bit of a tweak in approach, and it was made a little bit more simple. And when you're on a bit of a bad run and things aren't going well, and confidence is clearly not there within players, there is a little bit element of back to basics that can just work, can't it? At that kind of moment. Yeah, absolutely, and that you know, as 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 Tim was saying, you know, there were a lot more direct balls. You know, they seemed to be trying to get the ball wide a lot more. The the wingers actually looked like they were influencing the game, which they hadn't really done for a while. At sort of point, point, safe, safe point, and, and you know, I think he said in his post match how important Smallwood is in his eyes, and you know, that is sort of sort of endemic of the problem, right? That Smallwood couldn't, like uh, Hughes couldn't play him. <laughs> you know, he kind of sort of decided that he, I just can't play him in the way that I want to play. Whereas, you know, small uh, McDonald's come in and said, right, he can't play himself, you know, electing not to, understandably electing not to play himself and saying, like, right, well, Smallwood has to play and he has to be, we have to build the side around him. So how do you play when you build the side around him? You know, voila, here you go. So it's not, um, as you said, you know, he seems to, he knows the dressing room. He's got a, he's got his badges, you know, because I think Timmy had a, he said ki- injuries and this kidney thing, right, which meant he's had a long time out of the game. Is that right? And he sort of worked with the yeah. Fulham youth. Is that is that the story? Yeah. So he's got some sort of track record as well. And it sounds like one of my favourite City eras that we had uh, about 20 years ago is when we sacked, I forget who we sacked, but we ended up with a bit of a brains trust on the bench of like, was it Weatherall and Windass? And there were a few sort of old heads who were sort of the brains trust on the bench deciding what what the crack was. We seem to be getting back into that mode with Derbyshire and Colin Doyle. I'm all for this. So getting a sort of of manager, manager by committee. I'm a big fan of player manager by committee. Yeah, with yeah. Wayne Jacobs taking the team and dropping Dean Windass for a game at Stoke, yeah. and <laughs> we lost, and then Brian Robson came in. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> That's right. I remember that well because I was in the way in that day, and we were like, "Why, why is Dean Windass not playing?" And he was actually sat two rows in front of us, and that was a really bizarre moment, really. But yeah, it's quite bo- quite bold isn't it, to drop a, one of your teammates when you're just a caretaker for one game. But he didn't do that, did he? <laughs> what he did do, though, Tim, um, was he did make some changes that felt 
really good ones and like sensible ones to do. Like when I heard Bobby Pointer was playing, there was almost a feeling of well, that's clever because the crowd will be better for him for that. So it's a bit of a no-brainer and that sort of thing to to play him because you know that'll get the crowd on side. And I think bringing Gilead back in as well, as well as Smallwood, obviously, because we've had Daniel Ayoke playing in the central midfield. He might be a good player one day, but it felt like, what are you doing at this moment, Hughes? Why are you experimenting with this? It's not the time to do it when your job's on the line. And it just felt more like a a bit of a, a classic Bradford City performance, did it really, in terms of a bit of an underdog spirit was there, wasn't it? Yep. They battled hard. They were more direct. They created decent amount of chances. And yeah, the decisions worked well. Wilson had a decent game. I don't think left wing is his, quite his natural position. I think he's slightly better from the right cutting in, but he had some good moments. Poynton had a very good game. Jamie Walker has played very well recently and played well again. And yeah, and the midfield. I think Gilead was fantastic at times. There was one moment where he chased back a counter-attack, pulled off a brilliant sliding tackle to stop their guy, and then was able to get up and go charging forward through the middle and bring us 30 yards up the pitch and set up an attack. And that's the stuff that, at times under Hughes, he was a bit cautious in his runs forward. And you just think, no, got Smallwood there, go actually get the ball and dribble forward through the middle, drive through the middle and progress us up the pitch. Because, yeah, we actually it actually gave us a bit more of a plan from getting from one end of the pitch to the other. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of McDonald himself, um, I was looking up, there's an article in uh, February 2023 this year for the Scotland Herald where, when he just signed for Exeter. And they reported him saying in terms of kind of this kind of dilemma about being a manager or being a player, he said at that time, I'm not finished playing. I know I've got a couple of years left in me. I've already done coaching badges and it's something I've always been keen on helping younger guys, more in the sense of playing with them just now and helping the guys around me. But at the same time, I don't mind the coaching side. And it's probably fair to say, Alex, he's probably at that middle bit, isn't he, really, that you can probably see him. He must have got a taste for it on Saturday of that's the route he wants to go eventually. But this this opportunity almost comes too soon if you get yeah, McDonald, doesn't it? Definitely. I mean, it, it, especially if you think about like the, the the last five years of his career, if you know what I mean, like from where he was, he's come to us. He's not coming to earn money, right? He's come here because he wants to play, you know, and that's why he went to Exeter. Is why he's coming. Is what he talked about because he's not he's not been able to play as much as he would wanted. I'd be staggered if he'd be even open to the idea of giving up his final two years to take an early stab at management and get sacked next November when we're 19th, you know, which is probably a very high, highly <laughs> likely if you uh, look at our sort of track record. So I think it, it's definitely too soon to him, but, you know, it's good experience for him. And, you know, if you're if you're the city decision makers, I think it, it's very clear to everyone that they've not thought about what they were going to do before they did it, um, despite the fact that they've been, people have been talking about they've done it for a month. It's clearly not crossed their mind. So <laughs> something uh, that buys them a couple of weeks. Not that I have any faith that an extra two weeks is going to get them to a better decision, but if you can buy them a couple of weeks, then you know maybe they can shake the Magic 8 ball enough times to come up with a, a decent idea for what they want to do. So if he buys them an extra fortnight, that's that's definitely good for the club, and it's, you know, it's good for him as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we asked the question on Twitter in terms of what people made of Kevin McDonald's um, impression of the first game in charge as a caretaker manager. Um, Silver says, a very impressive players were set up much better. Night and day to Hughes set up. That performance is the basis of how we need to perform. Should show incoming boss what this crowd wants as the crowd responded to create as good atmosphere as I've seen in years. Very well done. Kiwi Banter says, I was engaged from kickoff and really enjoyed the match because of how we approached it. Yes, when they came to play, but we chased them down all day, forced errors and played on the front foot. Ditch possession to play 
play for and win second balls, then attack, not retain. More of that again, please. Uh, BW says, did everything right which Hughes got wrong, shooting from anywhere, following up with shots on goal, gave freedom for players to express themselves and assert themselves on the opposition. John Fornham says, if we continue to play like this under McDonald, then, then I'd like him to stay. The style of play is what we've been crying out for. I wouldn't want another manager coming in and changing it for the worse. I could even take an odd defeat with this style of play. Sean Moore says, did simple things well, realised that passion, pressing and hard work go a long way at this level, allowed players to do what they do best according to their abilities. And James says, looked promising, but we can't get carried away. A reaction after a manager sacking was always going to happen. Shouts for him to be giving it full time are premature. And that moves us nicely on to talk about the next Bradford City manager. And it doesn't half feel like we've done this quite a lot on the podcast over the year, guys, <laughs> going through the runners and riders. But here we are again. Can and we just come we place the last one and go for a pint? Is that is that <laughs> absolutely? Yeah. Just add it. Just add it in now. That'll be fine, <laughs> won't it? Um, before we talk in in terms of like the five, I would say main contenders. It seems to be at this moment in terms of the bookies. First of all. Um, um, Tim, if I ask you first, um, what kind of manager do you think Stefan Rupps and Ryan Sparks should be looking for at this moment in time? A good one. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's quite a difficult point now because Hughes was trying to play, play possession football. Do you double down it and get someone who can play possession football but actually play it, coach it better? Or do you look at the squad and think, Actually, Smallwood and Gilead in midfield, no, you'd have to completely rebuild that to play possession football through that midfield and get someone a bit more direct in. Um, and I suspect they're going to go the latter way. But the problem is at that point, we're, we're then sort of switching between strategies again and sort of that's giving ourselves a whiplash from all, the, from all the U-turns. And it'll be great news for Dane Oliver when he's back if we go more mm. direct again. But... <laughs> probably not brilliant for Ryan East out who's out on loan and maybe thinking he might get a chance to come back in um, so yeah I suspect we're going to end up going for someone who is a bit more direct to go for the idea that it was the style of football rather than the implementation of that style that was the problem which I think might be a mistake but then at the same time there's you know if you're going for someone relatively proven you're probably going for someone who's going to be like the, lots of the current bookies' favourites, a bit more direct. Um, the the one who I'm looking at and thinking might be a good option if you want to keep the possession style is Mike Williamson, but I don't think he's that high up in the bookies' rating. But his gates nope. outside of they're in the you know he's got them promoted once, he's got them in playoff contention for another promotion. He is doing a good job there, and they're playing some really good football. They play proper possession football, well coached, you know. There's actually purpose to it as well as keeping the ball. But I'm not sure we're going to particularly look at him. Yeah, um, and it's fair to say we'll go through the, who are the top five in the bookies when, when I looked at them, certainly uh, today when I was researching this. Um, and he's not in there, so we, we've talked to him, which is good. And I imagine it's probably one of them guys will, in a few years' time, he'll be at another club doing really well. And we'll have had that opportunity and just ignored him, obviously, at this point in time, and we'll be ruining that. And Tim, this is Mike Williamson centre half at Newcastle, Mike Williamson. Yeah, it's quite ironic because apparently he couldn't trap a football at all when he played. He was a proper old school, especially by Premier League standards. Um, could trap a ball as far as you could kick it, defender, kick it and head it away style one. And he's playing football like he's playing football like he's a um, northeast Pep Guardiola. <laughs> well, I think the. Uh... Yeah. My instinct of where they will go is whatever the Ouija board tells them to or whatever coin they flip up uh, comes up the right <laughs> way. But what is sounding like in the TNA, they've sort of been briefing out that City fans are Luddites who don't like people passing sideways. 
or whatever that <laughs> quote was that was in the Parker park article the other day. So I think he's definitely out. If he's a pass it sideways guy, that feels like that's a red line. Is that is that sort of the, the, the tenor amongst the lo- local media, Chase? That seems to be the, the noise, doesn't it, really? That's that's almost the briefing, isn't it? We don't want someone who's going to do that again. So no passing anymore, thank you very much. No passing. It's going, be, <laughs> it's going to be the opposite way, isn't it? It's a shame, and if people haven't seen it, it's worth just, just um, having a bit of a Google of Gateshead. And uh, they scored an amazing yeah. goal um, recently. It got, went kind of viral. A lot of newspapers picked it up. It was, I don't know how many passes it was, but it was absolutely fantastic. And to be fair, that's if you're playing that kind of football, I don't think anyone's going to be complaining with this. So, um, but anyway, um, he's not there. Uh, the favourite, as we speak at this moment in time, the recording of the podcast is uh, Liam Richardson, uh, who's a guy who lives in Leeds, so he's quite local. Um, he was appointed Accrington Stanley Manager back in 2012-13 after John Coleman had his short-lived spell at Rochdale, and he was then uh, caretaker and assistant to Paul Cook, and then took over again when Cook left for Chesterfield. Um, he chose to leave um, Accrington at that point and to be re- reunited with Paul Cook at Chesterfield. And for the next few years, he basically followed Cook wherever he went. So he had a spells as, as assistant at Portsmouth and Wigan. Then in April 2021, he became the Wigan manager after a couple of spells as caretaker. Wigan were in a bit of a mess at that point, but he did keep them in League One. And the year after, he oversaw the Latics promotion to the Championship as the champions. He was sacked last November after six defeats in seven left Wigan struggling and in the end they were relegated anywhere uh, and since that point he's been out of work and in terms of playing style um, I found the quote from the Free Amigos website which is a Wigan um, supporters website and I thought with this quote when I was reading it it kind of it sounds quite good um, but it also sounds quite like Mark Hughes so just see what you think. At its best, it is dynamic, high-intensity attacking football. At its worst, it is lethargic with seemingly endless, sterile, interpassing across the back four, too often terminated in a hopeful punt forward. Mm. Oof, looking in the mirror a little there. Uh, R- R- Richie Small would have loved that. He'd fit, fit right in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Alex, what do you make of uh, the, of the idea of Liam Richardson? He's local. You know, don't have to pay relocation fee. Can get the bus in. Um... <laughs> Uh, did all right at Wigan, I guess, until until he didn't. I mean, he seems like he's got a decent track record. You've been trying to hire Paul Cook on like six versions of this conversation, Jay. So if he's like <laughs> Paul have, Cook, yeah. that definitely means it's ticking your box. Uh, you, know, you know, why not? He's done all right. It's all a bit of a punt at this stage in it. So you know, he seems seems like he's like you know why not? I I wouldn't be I wouldn't be against it. Tim, <laughs> do you have any views? Well, if we're doing reasons to hire him that have actually nothing to do with his managerial ability, um, he had a very short trial at Bradford City in the Nicky Law era. He oh. played in the reserves, and there is wow. found reference to that in the TNA, um, while basically just Googling him and Bradford City being linked. Um, he was apparently at fault for one of the goals conceded, as our reserves lost 4-0. Um, Only one, though. So therefore, we, therefore we can um, go... Keep him in under the he knows the club. Yeah, logic. There you you know, go. He has been there very, very, very briefly, so he knows the club. So he know, um, he, <laughs> he he know he lives in Leeds and knows and how to get to Appley, and knows how to get to Appley Bridge. Oh, mate. Well, I mean, to be Isn't fair, it? that might have been one of the points where Appley Bridge was underwater for his week's trial. You know. <laughs> um. So, more seriously, he did a good job at Wigan. And he did a good job in challenging off the field circumstances in administration. And then, you know, has dealt with some quite difficult off the field stuff as well, because he was there when Charlie White had his yeah. cardiac arrest and so on. So, you know, he did have a very big budget for getting Wigan promoted. And then that money again ran out in the championship and because it turned out that their owners weren't actually going to fund the thing properly. 
and didn't have the money to fund the thing properly. Um, and yeah, they struggled, but then they also messed up the repl- Wigan messed up the replacement and struggled still. So I'm not sure how much of that was Richardson and how much of that was they got promoted to the championship and the championship is the sort of league where if you don't chuck another 15 million quid into the budget, you're going to struggle. Yeah. Um, because it's financially a madhouse. Um, so yeah, decent track record. Wouldn't be too bad, um, I think. But we shall see. Yeah. Um, the next one on the bookies list, second favourite, is uh, Danny Cowley, who has um, managed, been a manager since 2008, first of all at Concord Rangers and Braintree Town in non-league. He took over Lincoln City in 2016 when they were in the National League. Over a three-year period, he oversaw promotion back into the EFL, a top seven finish in League Two the year after, and then promotion as champions the year after that before he left. He also took the Imps to the FA Cup quarterfinals in 2016-17, and he reached the EFL Trophy Final in 2017-18, so like the Johnny Payne Trophy run, which is good. Uh, um, He became Huddersfield manager in September 2019, and he basically secured their survival to the championship, but he was sacked just at the end of the season as town wanted to change of direction. He then had two years at Portsmouth, where Portsmouth failed to push on for the playoffs, and he was sacked last January. His playing style, he's certainly known for being direct, especially when he was at Lincoln, and there were complaints about his playing style at Portsmouth as well. Um, but he did say, I dug out an interview he did for a, a publication called Leadership Relay in May 2020, where he said, in terms of our philosophy, the way you play is a way that's ever-evolving. I think the, na- the nature of your philosophy is close linked to an ideal. I think you have to be quite tactically flexible because of the, the nature of football, particularly when you're managing the lower leagues. You inherit a group of players and you have to try and find the best way of playing for them and for that group. Then, as you have success, you can slowly work towards the philosophy or the ideal that you want to get to. Then it's about how you implement that. Which I think, start with you again, Alex, feels like someone who may come into the dressing room and, and just carry on what's there for now, at least, which has to be a good thing. Well, especially saying we're three months from a transfer window and we've just sacked our manager. That's definitely a good thing, right? He's not, he's not, he's not really got an option to come in and come in and change something, uh, given when they've sacked, when they've sacked you. But yeah, I think I, you know, both quite well. He's he would be the one that would jump out to me as the one who feels like he that would be a good hire. He's the one, Tim. He's, he manages with his brother, right? The Cowleys are plural. Is that as, as I understand it? Is that right? Well, yeah, one of them's the assistant. Yeah. So two brothers goes with. Yeah, I mean, it's like the Truman and Sellers. They were a bit of a double act, although Truman was a bit more of the the front man. And you know, managers often come with an assistant. Stuart yeah. McCall has Kenny Black. Phil Parkinson has Steve Parkin. Um, so, just in this case, they're brothers. So yeah, that's nice. We'd get both of them, and that would mean that we don't have to hire a new assistant manager. There you go. So that's again. Another, Again, another positive. Another tick in the box, you know. He, uh, left HR work. <laughs> <laughs> He's a. I mean, that's that's a good CV, though. I think, right? Would you say, Tim? What do you think? Yeah, I would be concerned about his spell at Portsmouth, because Portsmouth in League One are they're not quite us in League Two, but they're a side that you'd expect to be challenging up there, and he struggled a bit with them. Um, and you do wonder if you know Lincoln was in many ways, quite a bit of an underdog story. Well, not in the conference, maybe, but in League Two, after they'd just come up, they were still a bit more underdogs. And his achievements are a lot of, you know, getting to the quarterfinals of the Cup, being quite direct, and again, a bit underdog story. So he's not... And even Huddersfield, they were 
I was going to say they had underdog in the championship. They shouldn't have been at that point. They still had Premier no, League money really, coming yeah. down. Yeah. Um, but they came down in an absolute mess, didn't they? And yeah, that's right. Kept them up and then got replaced for, I think, Carlos Corbran because they wanted to be um, like a mini Leeds in terms of style. Which, in fairness, Corbran did get them to the playoffs, so was, in hindsight, a relatively smart decision. So I think he would probably be a good appointment, but the spell at Portsmouth does concern me a little bit. Yeah, it'll have to see. It feels like, because he's, he's obviously the Sheffield Wednesday job is going at the moment, and he's made noises about that one as well, so it almost potentially is a... If Sheffield Wednesday don't want him, we might have a chance of getting him potentially, so I'd be we shall surprised see. if Sheffield Wednesday went for him, to be honest, yeah. considering that he's just been sacked from League One, or that yeah, exactly. most recent job. Um, although, say, who knows? League One at the yep. League One in... Six months will be Sheffield Wednesday, right? I think the way they're going. <laughs> That's true. They're getting ready, aren't they? If they get him. Um, the next one on the list is Carl Robinson, um, who hasn't been talked about too much, but he's 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 getting quite well in the bookies there. Um, so Carl Robinson has been the MK Dons manager um, from 2010 to 2016. Over that time, two playoff finishes in League One, promoted to the Championship in 2014-15, but relegated the year after. He was sacked just as he got back into League One as the MK Dons struggled a little bit. He had two years at Charlton, where not a lot happened, although it's very to say not a lot happens at Charlton full stop they are a bit of a muddling league one team then he was at five years at Oxford United from 2018 to 2023 two playoff finishes sacked this February after Oxford was struggling at the bottom and his most recent position was assistant to Sam Allardyce at Leeds at the end of last season helping him to get relegated so well done agent yeah. Carl on that one definitely. top man <laughs> Um, in terms of uh, playing style, he's known for passing, attractive attacking style football, very progressive. And I found a quote from Paul Doyle in The Guardian from 2012 where he said, Robinson has cultivated a slick style that has drawn comparison with Barcelona. So, you know, that's all right. In that same piece, um, Robinson was quoted saying, I remember seeing an interview we got that Gordon Strachan gave in which he said when he first got a job as a manager, all he wanted to do was win and he didn't care how. But I've gone the other way. I want to play well first. Um Tim, what, what what do you think about him? Jason, I'm going to guarantee your opposition to this appointment in one point. Carl Robinson once got a lengthy touchline ban for um, insulting Chris Rutis. Oh, um, with ref and he got uh, the lengthy ban was because it was basically with reference to him being French, so there was a xenophobic um, bit to it. Um, I don't particularly like him. Also, we always used to beat his MK. Absolutely. Yeah. So <laughs> that's just, you know how we, I mean, it's like the exact opposite of someone like Tommy Dotty or Jason Candy, who we always wanted to sign because they played well against us. And then they weren't actually that good for us. So maybe using that logic, because he was always bad against us. Yeah, you know, I don't want him. I think he would. He would annoy me too much. You're going to lose twice to Parkin. You're going to lose twice to, to Wrexham as a start. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, every absolutely. time we used to play and them, that's they probably used to the first us. game of the new appointment, isn't it? Yeah. Wrexham. Absolutely. You would lose that game because he's obviously playing Parkinson and he's incapable of beating him, as he proved year after year in the one. <laughs> also, I want to play well first. You know what that is, Jace? That's loser talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's Very why he got sacked from Oxford because he wants to play well first. So, not for me, Clive. Okay, we'll move quickly on. Um, another name who's been mentioned is uh, Pete Wilde, um, who is obviously the manager of Barrow at this moment in time. However, he's still scoring quite well in the bookies. Um, he has, over his time, has been older manager for three different spells, two of which were caretaker. During one of those, he managed, um, was older managed to, to beat um, Fulham in the FA Cup away at Craven Cottage when Fulham were in the Premier League. So, great achievement that. He uh, had three seasons at Halifax Town, where he did 
quite well in the league. It's got a lot of money there, but they know quite difficult for Halifax to compete in that. And obviously moved to Barrow in the summer of 2002, sorry, summer of 2022. Took them to ninth last season and currently 12th in the league. Um, he's a guy we talked about before in terms of when jobs I think the last before. two yeah. podcasts, yes. possibly last three managerial <laughs> yes. appointments, because I think he might have, I might have discussed him for the, the Truman one, yeah. the Adams one, and the Hughes one. So it's going to be at some point. It's going to be at the manager. Maybe we should get it over and done with it. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) He is the managerial equivalent of John Spicer. Always linked, never going to sign. Or Kieran Agard. (laughs) You know, oh, B- yeah. Billy Sharp, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, when when he was appointed Barrow manager, he did, did an interview for the Mail, which is a local Barrow paper, where um, saying, "In the short term, I like to think my think my teams are high energy, want to win the ball back at the earliest opportunity, and have good structure out of possession to make sure we don't concede many goals. If I can get that right in the short term, in the longer term, we want to dominate the football and be a team that's taking the game to people and the fans enjoying watching the football we put on." Not sure he quite got there with Barrow so far because they are quite <laughs> yep. a low not, not possession team. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, though, with Barrow, that's got quite a difficult one to actually get to be a dominant team at this level. They're always going to be the underdog, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Alex, there's, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about him the last few days, and I think there's a lot of people saying this could be a job that's a bit too big for him in his career. But what would you think? I, I mean, I, the the callback, I suppose, is to when Tim was saying earlier we were talking about Mark Hughes' failings where teams sat in. He was the manager of the side who had 23% possession and beaters. Uh, so he's definitely happy to be out of possession and definitely happy to be defensive. I I, I think he'd be he's good at Halifax, right? I mean, Tim, I be, I, the yeah. only thing I really know about Pete Wilde is Tim telling me that we should hire him as a manager. So I think I've been like Stockholm syndromed in to hearing this so many times, like a Pavlovian, like yeah, no, hire him. I'm sure he's good. I hear he's good. I hear good things. Many people are telling me that he'd be a good <laughs> appointment, and all of those people are Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so Tim, on that, what are your thoughts? Strangely enough, I think he'd be a decent appointment. Yeah, and I've thought that the last what three times we've appointed a manager. So he did a very good job at Halifax. Um, I think he got them into the playoffs twice. Um, once in the COVID interrupted season, where it went down to points per game, and he got them into the playoffs, and then just missed out, and then got them in the playoffs again. You know, actually pretty close to the top teams. You know, eighty odd points when I think that was the year Stockport won the league and Wrexham finished second in their first Hollywood season, and Grimsby went up through the playoffs. So that was a reasonably strong national league. And Halifax are not what you'd call the big budget team at that level, are they? And neither are Barrow. You know, Barrow went up, lost their manager, and barely stayed up as a result. If they'd got their appointment wrong, they'd have probably just slumped back out of the league in the next couple of seasons because they're not going to have the budget to achieve at this level if they make mistakes. And Pete Wilde's done a good job there. They were in contention for the playoffs last season up until close to the end. So, yeah, I think he'd be a good manager. Um, again, the question mark is, can he cope with like anyone who's achieved a sort of lower level than us, can he cope with the step up to being one of the really big teams in the division, big, big demanding crowd, etc. Um, but I think on paper, he's a good appointment. Okay. 
Um, interesting. So the final one we're going to mention, who's fifth on the bookies list at this moment in time, is Dean Holden, who another one who's had a short spell managing Oldham Athletic. That was in 2015. I, I guess like Bradford City, everyone manages Oldham at some point. Yeah, at some point. Um, <laughs> uh, he was Bristol City manager over the 2020-21 season, sacked in February 2021, so didn't last there for the full season. And he was a Charlton manager, appointed last December, was sacked um, in August of this, se- of this season. Again, Charlton not going, going, going anywhere. That's that's a common theme as well. Um, in terms of his playing style, he's said to be a three-five-two man. So I'm not sure that's mm. going to sit too well at this moment in time. And I did struggle to find much about his philosophy out there. But um, there was an article in Total Football Analysis website that says Holden encourages defenders to spend time with the ball at their feet. And again, <laughs> probably not a good thing in this current climate. Um, it does feel like a bit of a dark horse this one, Tim. But he hasn't gone away to just talk about him. So what do you think? I'm not convinced. There, I can remember there were mutterings when I think he was Lee Johnson's assistant at Bristol City, and Lee Johnson being one of those managers who is either absolutely brilliant or absolutely awful, normally within the same season with no in-between. So he's either getting seven wins in a row or six defeats in a row. Um, Holden was considered a very promising coach at that point, the sort of one that, like, oh, they're lining him up for the job when Johnson leaves, which is what happened. And then he's not really done anything. And so, you know, Charlton, yeah, not done much. There's a few there that haven't done much. and It's been a bit of a mess off the field. But if we're wanting to appoint someone, appointing someone who didn't do much at a club with some off the field issues, although not as serious as Charlton's, and a whole bunch of other managers have come in and not done much when they've actually done better elsewhere, I'm not sure... I think that's just a track record for him to repeat what he did at Charlton, really. So I, I don't think I particularly want him. I, uh, yeah. I, it's very hard to have an opinion of him because he's had such a sort of limited track record. So I'd just be making something up. But if they appointed him, they're appointing him off the same track record, right? It would be a massive gamble. I'm not sure what you'd be basing that gamble upon other than reading the same article that Tim read about him being groomed for being manager seven years ago at Bristol. You know, I... I <laughs> You Google. You can read. I've, I've like tried googling him <laughs> in, in preparation <laughs> to this. It's really hard to find out stuff about him. So I mean, I don't know. Maybe it'd be good, but you know, who knows? Maybe literally anybody would be good. Yeah, it does feel like such a risk, doesn't it? Because if that if you appoint him and that goes wrong, you're on oh. an absolute hide. There's nothing out yeah. you, really. There's not. You know, it's it's got to go well, otherwise it's it's going to go really bad, isn't it? If you're Ryan Sparks and Stefan Rupp. Um, well, they're the, they're the contenders, and we put the question out there on Twitter in terms of um, who people would like to see as the next Bradford City manager. Got a fantastic response. Um, Nick Clifford says, no one that has really mentioned so far has grabbed my interest. Probably Pete Wilde, but not managed a big club before. Could be a step too soon, which is something we just said before. Uh, James says, I just want the managers to come in and try and entertain, get shots off crosses and wingers. All fans want his players giving it their all and trying to have a go. If a new manager gets his tactic, style of play and identity, it will all follow. Um, Del Rio says, if we can give McDonald's a chance for a little while, it could be win-win. Yesterday was a clear example of not of how knowing the situation can be advantageous. Other managers would impose things and with their own team. Starting from scratch would be a concern. Rob Slater says anyone who plays on the front foot, aggressive attacking football, creates lots of chances, gives youth a chance and gets the potential of the club being a sleeping giant. Michael Brett says um, McCall for a fourth stint, obviously. We didn't mention him, but yeah, it's a good point. Probably going to lose his job at Sheffield United soon because I'm sure Heckingbottom is, so yeah, maybe. That's another one. Um, Not good, is it? As I said, um, number one, Nathan Jones. 
another one we've not mentioned, but I think for obvious reasons. Number two, Danny Cowley. And number three, uh, Williamson, uh, Tim's man, in that order. Uh, BW says Carl Robinson or Mike Williamson. Feel it'll be Dean Holden, though. Uh, and the outsider says, don't need any of them. All failed one way or another. Need an experienced assistant for Kevin McDonald who will allow him to carry on his desire to make up for the lost time in his career and who shares his ideas and vision for the game. Think of Trevor Cherry and Roy McFarlane's success. Uh, and that's related to the 80s when um, we had Tre- Trevor Cherry as a player manager at Bradford City. Um, so, yeah, we shall see, I guess, we will. And I look forward to you, you guys to us, us doing this again in six months' time when we yeah. talk about next Well, I mean, we definitely make sure that we save this recording so we don't have to bother next Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Because I'm sure... Yeah, Robin just will, sort yeah. of... If we can just sort of record a few of the names again and I can just sort of <laughs> splice them over the top yeah. and just see which yeah. ones I can fit to the general profile. And the benefit of sacking a manager in October is it's not too soon to sack him again in April. So you know, still, you've still got you've still got time to sack him again, which is the real yeah. positive of doing it so early. Um, Jace, who would you who would you hire? Got to your head. Probably Danny Cowley, but I wouldn't be particularly excited about it. Yeah, and I think that's the problem. It's not a very exciting list it's this not, time, is it? I was I was all. I played on that bookies list of stuff, which I assume is where the the big database of managers to hire comes from for for clubs like ours. <laughs> Um, I don't really want any of them, so I don't know. Yep. <laughs> Danny yeah. Cowley, I guess, is probably the least risky, but yeah, yeah, just I don't really want any of them. The it's com- just not the that campaign inspiring. for Mike Williamson starts here. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> he's going to go somewhere and be great, and it just won't exactly. be us. And we'll look at it and go, "Yeah, we should have appointed him." Like yeah, the numerous it's... times we could have appointed Chris Passes Wilder when he was at Halifax. Exactly, can't be passing. He um, can't be bringing people. <laughs> pass. No. Um, moving on then, and we we did plan to talk a bit about the off off the off the uh, field stuff at Bradford City and what's going on there, and we do want to touch on it a little bit. But we, I think as we go into this, it feels like it needs almost its own podcast on its own because there's so much to talk about here. But I think just briefly, it's worth talking about a bit about the direction of the football club because I think there has been a bit of a narrative uh, over, since the Hughes sacking, definitely in the local media and and certain outlets like the TNA to put all the blame on Mark Hughes for what has gone wrong and to really kind of stick the knife in. Um, I think that the match report that Simon Parker did at the weekend for the Swindon game is dripping with... with uh, I don't, It's a bit of a hatchet job, isn't it, on Hughes, really? Let's be honest. It, it's really going for him on that one there. And I don't think that's fair because I think there's a lot of other problems at the football club at this moment in time that go beyond that. And I think just as a starting point, Alex, when Bradford City play Wrexham in two weeks' time and Phil Parkinson returns... It's likely he's going to be coming up against the tenth different permanent managerial appointment at Bradford City since he left seven years ago. We talked about it before. Um, I've written about you know the Father Ted analogy, saying mass all the time. We're always changing manager. What is it about this time that thinks it could be any different? There's no, it's not going to be any different. Of course, it's not going to be any different. What are you talking about? It's the same. The uh, I have a graph that I always put out on Twitter every time we sack a manager that I've had for going for about four years. We've had, in the last 35 years, mine and Tim's entire life, plus one for Tim, one manager's had more than three seasons and it's Parkinson. My entire life. <laughs> you know, we have, we've had, Hughes is the first manager who's had more than one season since, like, McCall and the COVID era. You know, it's the, not McCall, but not even that one, the one before that, sorry, forget, yep. forgive me, the League One one. Um, it, you know, it's not going to change. It's the, the uh, uh, Tim, uh, Tim's mate Matt, uh, Mike Williamson is also being plugged by uh, your man Ali Maxwell from the Not the Top Twenty podcast, who uh, talks a lot of sense. Though he's quite aligned with Tim on a lot of things, which makes me quite wary. But he said, you know, you've got to get yourself off the managerial carousel, and Mike Williamson is is the guy that you do. He's a good way to get off the carousel for for clubs in League Two without a manager. Thing is, if you had the wherewithal to get off the carousel, 
you, you wouldn't be on the carousel in the first place. The reason that you're on the carousel is because as a club, you're not capable of taking long-term decisions and you're not capable of making the right decision when you take a short-term decision. So you're on the carousel. If anyone at the club had the strategic forethought and planning and considered analysis to think, ooh, maybe let's do something that doesn't end us up sacking someone in a year's time, we wouldn't be where we are. So that is inevitably what they're going to do. I think they've sacked the manager now in the short term because they're desperate for a reaction because they don't want to accept the reality that they've invested in a squad that's not going anywhere this year. Sack the manager, yeah. that'll fix it. Therefore, and if the manager fixes it, then it's not us who've hired all the wrong people and have set up a structure that doesn't work and come up with a strategy that makes no sense. You know, it's the manager. Because I can't face the reality that we're running a club where we don't know what we're doing. Um, so you sack the manager, you do the same next summer, it's not working, sack the manager, because you don't want to accept. The only way you can get off is by doing something radical, like Tim says, you know, give it to a young manager who doesn't have a track record, who plays a new style, and say, actually, it's a two and a half year project, and then we're going to get off the carousel, we're going to invest in a young manager, and go from there. They don't have the wherewithal to take that decision, because if they did, we wouldn't be here. Absolutely, and totally agree. And, and Tim, on on that, I mean, we've one of the things that's been the last few years a big massive debate we talked about a lot is is recruitment and um, the issues there and they have tried to make changes there and obviously being Stephen Gentin as head of recruitment but it, as we talked about in the last podcast completely not aligned really with what Hughes was trying to do if you are thinking differently what are you thinking in terms of the role of Stephen Gent here and, and what happens here from from a manager point of view I mean it's basically a case of double down on Gent or not and if not then we're doing what we did with Lee Turnbull and getting rid of him because Derek Adams said so. I think it goes back to Alex's point on structure. I don't think the structures are in place. I think we are just hoping that the manager will change things like Phil Parkinson did for us, not putting the structures in place to make it easy for a manager to succeed. Recruitment-wise, we seem to have recruited two different squads over the summer, one for 3-5-2 and then scrambling at the end, another one for 4-2-3-1 with some wingers. And even then, we ended up with probably one winger too many when we pro- when we needed a big striker to cover for Oliver and Cook while they were injured. So, yeah, it just seems not at all joined up thinking. And it does feel sometimes like there's a void at the top. Ryan Sparks has been very quiet in the press since he had that podcast interview where he said that there was you know, he said something about how we weren't getting any owner funding from Rupp at the moment. And it was a point about how we, you know, this is a good point for us. We'd increased uh, commercial revenue quite significantly. Our marketing and commercial team is working again after Rahich gutted all the goodwill among sponsors and we lost a load. So, you know, that's a good thing. But because it was seized on as no owner funding, that is one of the things that is being used to attack Rupp, the lack of investment, the bit of a void at the top. And that means that there's the only person speaking on behalf of the club has just been sacked. Um, you know, if Stefan Rupp really isn't speaking, fair enough, you know, he's got, you know, I don't think he, you know, your article was pretty spot on, Jason. He never really wanted to be the main person owning a football club. He wanted to be the person in the background who occasionally provided money and watched the investment grow. But then if Ryan Sparks isn't speaking either that much, there's a void again. And in the in that vacuum people are just going to say you know opposition will grow especially when the on the pitch stuff isn't working and you know off the pitch things do seem to be improving quite a lot the club seems with the exception of the badge problem generally a bit smarter a bit more competent but the football structure just still isn't there we brought in Hughes and Gent to sort that and it hasn't worked so 
Is it, do we just go, right, let's keep the structure we have and just hope that we make a better appointment? Or do we have to think about a director of football and a better structure that way and get that appointment right? And I'm not sure I have that much faith in the club to get these appointments right, especially considering the track record with Ryan Sparks is the managerial appointment is just we're going to go as the opposite of the last one a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And and on that, I mean, the director of football point, Alex, that is probably the, the key question because it was something that was discussed a lot in the wake of Derek Adams losing his job. And then it kind of went away with Hughes because it, it was tricking away because you're bringing someone with that experience and probably that expense. And then saying you're going to bring a director of football above them maybe was a bit awkward at that point in time. But it kind of feels like you know the problems that have subsequently emerged show that it is still needed, isn't it? Really, and would do you think that you know someone to work alongside Ryan Sparks will potentially help? Because as Tim has said, you know there's some fantastic stuff commercially off the pitch, doing really well on that side of it, and that's that's credit to Ryan Sparks for that side of it. But does he just need that bit more support around him to help him to do to do a better job on the football side? I mean, I, I don't know Ryan Sparks. I've never met him, never spoken to him. As Tim says, seemingly. You know, former comms director seems that the club off the field is like a, is doing really well. If he was capable of being good at all those things and was also so bright as a football mind, he could be in charge of the big strategic footballing decisions of a multi-million pound football club. That'd be amazing. I can't think there are many people in the world who have both of those skill sets at the same time, let alone someone who was at the club when when, when these decisions were made. Right, so it would be a massive coincidence if he were to have both those skill sets within him at the same time. And you know, he's sort of asking too much of him to expect him to do so. So, you know, having more people who understand football, making decisions about football, I would suggest would be a sensible approach. However, you know, it's, beyond, it's like, it's just planning. They don't plan, you know, we, we, you can look at it, you can just watch, you know, look at their actions. They came out and said they sacked Hughes because the fans turned. And then they've got, given the caretaker manager to our central midfielder, who's had to drop himself, despite being one of our better players, because they didn't have a plan. You know, they've been talking about sacking him for a month. You know, we've been, we've been talking about it that he's about to get sacked for a month. They lose one game away at Tranmere. They sack him and they're, oh, I don't know, give it the central midfielder because they don't plan. They don't think, <laughs> you know. And if they, if that's the state that they're in, you know, you're just having someone whose job it is to be like, right, you know, like at Brighton, our manager gets poached. Let's just hire a better one in two days because we've actually thought about it in advance and have got a plan and have talked to an agent and we sort of know what we're going to do and we've got a style that we want to play. Like having someone who can just be, this is the plan, if something happens and can continue to plan. Expecting Ryan Sparks to do that as well as all the other stuff he's got to do, it's like massively unrealistic. You know, So whether it's a director of football, I don't know, I'm not a football administrator, you know, whoever it is, whatever the title is, whoever, someone whose job it is to just decide where we're going um, is a, on the footballing side of things. Sounds like it would just be massively valuable because it clearly doesn't exist at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we put the question out there on Twitter in terms of what people make about the way the club has been at this moment in time. BD6 Banter says, a good CEO appoints the football staff, then provides for them. Easy to have hindsight, but we moan like hell when Rahit got massively involved in actual football decisions. Easy target says, nobody actually sees what they do until they're rubbish, which Sparks isn't. Harry says, two dimensions, financial and football-wise. The former, yes, credit to Sparks for running a financially sound business and increasing revenues. The latter, no, need a director of football and less scattergun approach to recruitment. The gap between us and Barnsley and Rotherham and Huddersfield is big and growing. Nick Clifford says, better the devil you know with Rupp. Could he put more money in? Yes, of course he could, but he would always make sure we have a top seven budget. So it's a case of getting the football decisions right and we could be successful. 
Michael Brett says, I'm willing to give him them a pass for now. I do feel that Hughes was a little too detached, carried himself like a retiree that begrudgingly was forced to be captain of his local golf club because his wife was sick of him sulking around, rearranging his DVD collection. Interesting analogy. Uh, James says, think we need someone to come in and be in charge of football decisions at the top. Rupp and Sparks don't seem to have the no- to be knowledgeable enough on that side of things. H says, I think we mainly need a director of football who can make sure our recruitment coach and the management is spot on and suits the style of play fans can get behind with a manager who will play a good brand of football similar to what we saw at the weekend. The foundations are there, but things need tweaking. Um, Lancaster Band says, recruitment department a bit suspect. It'd be, be easy if the fans knew the process at the minute, as all we know is Gent is in charge, but does the manager have final say? Does the manager ask if he can watch people he wants, or does Gent watch players and point them out to the manager? And Ewan Miller says, missing a director of football, someone who takes football decisions out of the CEO's hands with manager and recruitment reporting into them. Right, uh, final thing I want to say, and hopefully it was a b- be a bit more of a light-hearted end because it's been quite a heavy hour, I think it's fair to say, is kind of talking about moments where you've had a football opinion about Bradford City and it's been proven wrong quite spectacularly sometimes. And the inspiration for this comes um, from you, Tim, and the experience that we had last week at Tranmere with our good friend uh, Gaz Walker, who does lots of great stuff for Woodford Post as well, a really valued uh, member of the team, and the way he reacted to when Bradford, just before Bradford City equalised. So, Tim, if you, you want to tell the story. Yeah. Um, so we're on the attack and we've got a corner and Adam Wilson takes it short to Brad Halliday who has got himself into some space for a cross at the edge of the box and short corners often get this reaction but I can't remember the exact words I think one beginning with F was in there somewhere but it was generally just general despair that we were taking a short corner at which point Halliday swings over across Cook buries the header and we spend the rest of the game taking the piss out of him for that incredibly quickly disproved footballing opinion. So, yeah, the uh, joys of being proved spectacularly wrong instantly. I've done this as well. Um, I still get reminded sometimes of the playoff game against Burton, where when 3-1 down, Gary Thompson's cutting in onto his weaker foot, and I think he's lining up a shot, and I'm going, don't shoot, don't shoot. And he does, in fairness, hit it straight to the keeper, but it goes straight in. Keeper makes a bit of a mess of it. Um, And I was reminded of that by some of my friends for a while as well. Yeah, absolutely. Closest one to that, the Marty Yates at Chelsea, standing up from where I was in the Chelsea end as he's sort of going into the fourth, because he messed it up two minutes before didn't go to the corner, got tackled, and they almost scored at the other end. Literally standing up in the Chelsea end, just screamed, corner! Really loud as he cut inside, <laughs> to, passed it into Stead and scored. That was, uh, yeah. It's standing out amongst a lot of Chelsea fans as well. That was suboptimal. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, I think we talked about the one with me with uh, uh, Kyle Reid many years ago at Walsall. With, with Gaz actually again there, and we were screaming at him, pass it, pass it, you greedy you know so and so and then he whacked well into the top corner from 30 yards and uh, yeah that was that was a brilliant moment as well and I'm also reminded many times by you guys about my impassioned defence of Chris Rutus for the best part of a year and what a great player I thought he was which sadly did not age you too admit well, defeat you admit well, defeat on Chris Rutus <laughs> I mean I mean again there's a whole podcast we could do about kind of the, the way everyone conspired against him and you know the dark forces <laughs> at play that were there stopping it happening but yeah I guess well, the dark horse is him not being very good and being mugged <laughs> by that Preston striker one time. <laughs> exactly. It's not fair, you know, when people do that, you know. <laughs> take advantage of inept play. Just not good, is it? He was on the, um, he was on the pitch at that Chelsea goal, right? 
I think he was, he was actually, one of the biggest yeah. winners of the, the last 20 years. He was right there, right at the end. Absolutely, making the difference. Yeah. Absolutely, getting getting over that line, wasn't it? Um, I think a funny one as a collective one as well of a Bradford City crowd that reminded me when I think about this topic today was back in uh, October 2008 and we were playing Luton at home in League 2. Nil-nil, not going very well. And uh, Stuart McCall brought Barry Conlon on from the bench and everyone in the crowd booed Barry Conlon as he came onto the pitch. And then he scored with his first touch. <laughs> and that is a collective, absolute everyone being proven wrong, which was just amazing, really, when you think about it. Yeah, um, I'm going to drop my manager's, well, my manager's manager now because he's got a promotion since then. But um, again, going back to the Chelsea game, he's a Chelsea fan. He texted me game over at 1-0 in that game and was <laughs> therefore proven wrong over the course of the rest of the game, um, which was a good one. And I think there was another one, um, a friend of mine who I used to go to games with um, called Ashley, who I can remember at one point, I think it was a long clearance from the keeper against someone in the first League One season. I can't remember who against. And I was like, oh, who's that to? And then defender and keeper get in each other's way. Naki Wells does what Naki Wells does in nipping in, puts some pressure on them, nips in between them, scores. And it's like, again, just the, just the instant getting <laughs> it wrong is what stands I, out there. Do you, do you remember um, you remember Chib Chilaka? Yes. So. Yeah. I <laughs> I knew him by one it by extension of one. So I went to university in Hull in 2006, and someone who joined who I knew at the time, one of my mates at the time, Ben, played for Hull University first. He was like pretty good, and Chip Chilaka played up front for Hull Hull University first at the time. He was like, and, and when and he, so I sort of half knew him, knew him by name or whatever. Sort of he was relatively known, and that yeah. And he, he whenever he signed for City, it was like was that Taylor? I forget what era yeah, he ended Taylor, up signing yeah. for City. Yeah. And then I was like, I bloody know that name. And I text, text my Ben, but he used to play with you, right? And he was like, he's the best player I've ever played with. Like, he's going to be, I really <laughs> think he's going to be really good for you. And I was like, right, here we go. I know this guy. If he comes on, I can sort of just put it around the crapping. I, I know this guy. He's going to be really good. <laughs> yeah, this, this person I played with, who he's the best. Ben is the best player I'd ever played with. And he said he's the best player that he's ever played with. So he's definitely going to be really good. And needless to say, was not the best player that he uh, had ever seen <laughs> in that thing. So, yeah, so really got everyone within earshot of me hyped up that this kid, he's, he's we've, we've unearthed one here, and it's potentially the worst sub appearance I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was not good, was he? So that's not great. Um, we put the question out on Twitter, so I think it's worth just going through some of these because there are some brilliant uh, uh, responses we've had in terms of when you've been wrong with a football opinion related to Bradford City. Rob Hunt, um, actually not quite Bradford City, but it's certainly got a link. Um, watching the Everton game once when Peter Bagri lined up a shot from 35 yards don't be an idiot, I shouted just as he absolutely lamped it into the top corner. Uh, Kiwi Bantam also says, um, thought Graham Lee was destined to captain us to the League 2 title in Stuart McCall's first spell. Instead, he was bang average, cost us goals and went missing at the back end as we tailed <laughs> off to mid-table. Yes, uh, I think we all thought that for early days. I remember thinking he was incredible, wasn't he? Uh, Chris says, um, thought McLean was going to push us to the championship after Wells was sold. Got that one very wrong. Uh, I think we all did. <laughs> I was on the right side of history, historically. I can unearth the transcripts. I never thought that was going to work. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the tapes. That's good. <laughs> um, uh, Paul Geisler says, I thought Alex Jones 2017-ish yeah. was going to be the real deal. This was on my list. Yeah. I, I still deep down think that he's just a good run of form away from making it in the championship. <laughs> Always rated Alex Jones. 
I wonder where he is now. I, I dread to think. Uh, not <laughs> certainly not on the on the verge of the championship. Put it that way. He, he was um, on my list of players like that. I still sort of think couple of sub appearances he might break through do you remember Jack Compton yes left winger absolutely. in that uh, that sort of yeah. really rubbish team that we beat we all, we almost beat Leeds and lost I think in the cup is that right yeah. that sort of Dave Sires team always loved a yeah. bit of Jack Compton uh, yeah we, still we still might make do it like, we could almost do like a nearly team one time with like 11 of players who nearly were absolutely brilliant obviously Rutus will be the captain because <laughs> uh, that saying this uh, is some Mike... definition of nearly brilliant that I'm not aware of here, Jason. <laughs> Nearly's doing a lot of work. <laughs> now, th- now this this was a good one from Michael Brett. He says, I genuinely felt that Stephen Warnock, when he was on loan from Liverpool in the early noughties, would be out of professional football within a few years, especially when I compared him to his fellow Liverpoolian, Tom Kearney. And of course, <laughs> Warnock went on to have quite a career, including playing for England. <laughs> Didn't we play Warnock in central midfield when he was a left-back? Yes, um, we did. Good which mention. was uh, <laughs> considering we actually had three left backs in that post administration side. We had Myers, Jacobs, and Emmanuel who could all play there. It was like, and we were short in midfield because Kearney had got injured. And then sort of like, let's sign a left back to play in midfield. But yeah, if you'd said which of our loanees is going to go, go play for England from that season, and you said that one of them would, it would have been Michael Proctor in my head, which Absolutely. shows how spectacularly wrong I'd have been on that one. <laughs> Yes, that's another one, isn't it? Uh, and, and the link on that one, Sam says, this is a belt, this one. My dad, brother and I had a bet in 2002 free season on which young player would play in the Premier League. Uh, his dad won because he picked Simon Francis. Yep. His brother went for Matt Bo- Bauer and he went for Lewis Emmanuel. Um, although he does say, you know, Lewis did lead, play in the championship, so he did nearly get there, didn't he? But yeah, that's 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 not the, the horse to back in that one, is it? Simon Francis was yep. good. That was a good bet by yes. whoever it was in that family who got Simon Francis. That's a good. That's a good shout. Yeah, yeah it did, it I'm did surprised well. it took him so long. To be honest. Yep. Um, Rob Rob Slater says for, uh, for plenty of players were better than they ended up being, but not really the other way. Although having given Alex Gilliard a hard time, he's changed my opinion. Uh, the Hughes era says I despise Eddie Johnson with a passion and spent his whole City career moaning about him. He scored a brace against Crew and I got pelters that day. <laughs> But still can't believe we lost Windass and got Johnson. Biggest downgrade of all time. Uh, H says, in recent memory, I thought Sean Scannell would be our best player and key to getting us promotion to the championship. (laughs) So as an ineffective winger, he's obviously in my sort of stable as Sean Scannell. But I think there was, is this the, am I getting my years wrong, Tim? Because I thought we had Clarence Sadoff's nephew or something at the same time as him. We did. Uh, a yeah, distant did. cousin, I believe. Distant cousin, but... yeah. He yeah, was the Sherman one I really liked because I saw him as a sub appearance and he was like proper blind alley toe. You never really saw him again. So he was the one I was really sort of in, in behind. Is it Sherwin Sadoff? Sherwin yeah, Sadoff. Yeah. Last spotted at Motherwell in 2021 and hasn't really played since, according ah, to Wikipedia. Disappointing. Not great. No. Uh, and H, H on that one as well, the Sean Scannell one. Um, he, he said he said that he didn't learn his lesson because a year after he thought Zeli Ishmael would also be that player who takes it on. So again, another one wrong. Uh, Ollie, who's been a, a friend of the podcast, who gave us that great content last last time about um, Donovan Ricketts, he says he put a bet on Ross Hanna to be the league's top scorer when we signed him. <laughs> I was convinced we'd unearthed a gem. Uh, when we signed Ross Hanna, he had comfortably outscored Jamie Vardy in the same division, who's only about a year older than him. Wow. Yeah. Um, Maybe he should have so... gone to Fleetwood, it would have all been different. <laughs> he, he from me- from memory he got a bit unlucky that Parkinson came in like just after we signed him right who clearly like looked yeah, at him yeah. and one day was just like nope uh, but if if he'd have stayed if he'd gone if we'd have kept the old manager for a while he might have 
He might have been able to carve out a, a, a league career. The big maybe. problem he had was we signed Naki Wells the same summer. Yeah. And Naki Wells was everything Ross Hanna was, but much better. <laughs> yes. So we'll, I think we'll put um, Ross Hanna up front in our nearly 11, yeah. basically. Yeah. I think he's there. Uh, Ollie also says that um, when um, he, he said, why is he shooting from there? Which was shouted at Stephen Darby just as he was taking aim against Burton in the League Cup game. So <laughs> that's another belter one there. That's another one there. Uh, a couple of people have just put Will Atkinson, which uh, I think we're, we'll all agree with that one, isn't it? He was a player that he proved a lot of people wrong, didn't he? Yeah. Very, very uninspiring loan spell. Brilliant. See the next season. Yeah. Um, and then the final one, which I'll, I'll go to Will Rook. Um, and this one was quite topical because uh, he was... Yeah, he was digging Tim out a little bit at half time on the game on Saturday because um, Tim had obviously tweeted Bobby Pointer and play well. Obviously, had tweeted that. We all know the the bias that's going on there. And Will made the point actually he hadn't been playing that well actually at Pointer and he barely touched the ball. And uh, Tim was maybe being a bit oh, a bit too generous there. Um, but in the end, was proven quite wrong. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, five minutes into the second half, he just t- tweeted again and said, "Yeah, okay, fair play." <laughs> <laughs> So yes. Um, anyway, that we'll, we'll end it on that. But that was that was good fun, and thank you everyone who's tweeted in. Thank you everyone who has been uh, listening to us. Uh, we do really appreciate the support that you give us. Um, as ever, we'll continue to do what we do on Woodford Post over the coming weeks. Uh, write about the new manager, whoever that may be, and the first few games of the season. And we'll try and do a podcast in November time. Obviously, uh, Tim's got the baby on the way, so we'll see when and how we can do that. But we'll certainly try to do one. But as ever, thank you so much.